0: Are you in? It's a big question. It's a bold way to start a sermon. Are you in? I'm in. Fully committed. Perfect. Not even close. Devoted. You better believe it. As I was reading through the parable this week, it begs that question. Are you in? And it's easy. It's easy to say it. Hard to do it. And I was reading through Luke chapter 14. Out of all the parables that everyone picked this summer, guess who picked the aggressive, challenging one? The one that's going to beg you to consider whether you even love or are devoted to God at all. First, we get God's kingdom is this beautiful treasure in the field. This person finds it and they're filled with joy and they sell everything to go get it. Hallelujah. And next, there's this lost coin, and this woman would do anything to go get it back. And when she finds it, there's a celebration at this moment. Jesus is talking about it mirroring the celebration in heaven when someone repents. Amen. And this week in Luke 14, the question is asked that you and I are building towers with our lives The question is, have we considered what it's going to cost? You and I are going out to battle in our lives. Have we considered how many troops we have around us and how many troops the other army has? See, at first this parable felt like it was a huge departure from the last one. And then I began to realize that it's awful similar when you look at it a little more closely. You see to go get that treasure out in the field, what did that person have to sell to go get it? They had to sell everything. And they sold everything they had to go get that field, to go get that treasure because it was worth it. And that woman looking for that coin, do you think she considers it worth it? Would it did it become her sole focus? Was it worthy of her devotion, this task? Well, I would say based on the celebration that followed, that when that coin became lost, finding it became the, the thing that was largest in her life by the way she celebrated. So as Jesus asks us this question as followers of him, are we willing to count the cost, to give up everything to follow him? Are we being flippant with it? Or are we truly considering the resolve that it's going to require of us? Truly, it's a continuation of these other stories that we've been reading. Because here is this treasure out in the field. Are we going to go sell everything and go get it or not? This is a book that I read quite a few years ago. And an example, a story out of this book stood out to me. This is a book called All In by Mark Batterson, but the story in here is what caught me, and it's the story of Cortez. I don't know much about history from the 1500s, but when I read this, this stood out to me, and I thought of this as I was getting ready to teach you this morning. It goes a little bit like this. Cortez set sail for Mexico with 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. On a crisp February morning in 1519, roughly when Pastor Don was born, 1519, just kidding, there were close to 5 million natives there when he arrived. The odds were stacked against him, 7,541 to... 1 Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the new world, but as you know with world history, Cortez conquered much of South America on his own. What Cortez did after landing is an epic tale of mythic proportions. He issued an order that turned his mission into an all or nothing proposal. This was the order Burn the ships. Burn the ships. Who does that? What's even crazier, who listens to that order? As his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink, they realized there was no retreat. It was not an option. No plan B, no plan C. Plan A. Burn the ships. Reminds me of Elijah and Elijah from 1 Kings. You might not remember this story. This is an Old Testament story from 1 Kings 19. Listen to a few of these verses before we go to Luke and read our parable. You remember Elijah? Elijah was a pretty cool prophet in the Old Testament, right? Well, he had to go find someone to replace him because there was going to be another prophet. In the country of Israel, and he went looking for a friend named Elisha. God told him to go find him and make him a prophet. Listen to this. So Elijah, he departed from there and he found Elisha. This is verse 19 of 1 Kings 19, if you want to read this later. He found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. He was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. He left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. And he said to him, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again. What have I done to you? He returned. He returned from following Elijah, he took the yoke of oxen, and he sacrificed them. He boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen as the wood for the fire. And he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. Can you imagine that story? In a practical sense. One commentator I was reading, because I want to know more about this, said to have 12 yoke of oxen. This is a huge farm. This isn't small. This is huge. And when Elisha is called into ministry, he goes back to say goodbye. But for some reason, he wants to commit himself to this, to the point where he will remove the option to go back. No, he doesn't just take the oxen back to the barn and put them in the pen. He doesn't just take the yokes off them and hang them up in the barn. That way the hired man can go and he can finish the seeding, right? Maybe dad could, someone else, a family member. For some reason, Elisha is looking at this life of ministry ahead of him, and he's looking back at the farm, and he's looking ahead at the life of ministry, and he looks back at the farm, and he lights up. The farm on fire. Burn the ships. There's no going back. Once he leaves with Elijah, he's not going back. They have a feast, they eat together, he says goodbye, and he leaves. That's someone who has counted the cost of the decision that they're making. That's what I think of when I'm reading in Luke 14. We're going to read this story together, and we're going to talk about what we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves, and what we learn about the gospel and salvation in this story. Now, for a little bit of context, I'm going to summarize a little bit of the beginning of the chapter, because our parable is at the end of the chapter. But to make sense, I think we need to know the stories around it. But it all comes back to this question, are you in? Are you committed? Not perfect, but devoted. Are you in? Well, Luke 14 starts with this story. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy in Jesus, responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful? To heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son, having an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't say a thing to him. He's in the midst of the people that know God most closely most intimately, his word. And yes, as Jesus is ready to extend life to someone, there's this tension in the room because that's not how we treat God's law. Our righteousness is from its faithful obedience and they can't think outside of the fact that maybe the law and maybe God himself is to give us life and not strip life away from us. They're distracted. They're looking in the wrong direction. They're not seeing clearly. There's this banquet. There's this banquet, and he tells a parable to those who are all invited to them. He says, when you're invited to a banquet, now this is a summary of it. I won't read each verse. Consider the place where you're going to go sit at the banquet. Just like when you get invited over to someone's home. Where do you sit when you first walk in? And in this banquet, all these people look at the best seat. And immediately, the pride inside of them drives them to sit in that place. Whether it's because they want to get treated differently or they think they deserve to be treated differently, they go straight there. Jesus says this just isn't the attitude we're supposed to have. We're people of humility. We take a low position and we allow God to elevate us. The host of the banquet should welcome us to the best seat. We shouldn't assume that it's ours. That's not the posture that we take before God. We don't deserve our way into heaven. We don't earn our spot in his kingdom. We're welcomed in, even though we don't deserve it. Next, he builds on this story. And he references who you invite to your banquets. He said to the man who had invited him, this is verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or even rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I have such an imagination that when I read these stories, I love, I love to imagine what that would have looked like. How many people could be sitting in that room? A dozen, two dozen, three, it's hard to know. And he's sitting in there and he looks at the person who's hosting everyone. And he says, when you throw the next party, consider who you invite here. Look at the people you invited, the richest people in town. And you pretend like it's a gift to them. You pretend like it's a gift to them. I know why. You invited all of them. You just want to get invited back to their house. Some gift. You're only thinking about yourself, and the whole room just goes silent. Why don't you give a real gift and invite people who can't invite you back? But you're not thinking about them. You're thinking about you, as he says to the host of the meal. Convicting, hey? And then one of the guests of the banquet tries to uh, change the mood a little bit because that was a little tense, Jesus. That was a little hostile. We're trying to have supper here. One of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things and he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Am I right? And everyone probably begins to laugh or chuckle or smile. That's right. One day we'll all be there together. And Jesus says, nope, nope. Do you know why? Because the kingdom of heaven, the banquet that we'll have one day, is like this story. A man threw a banquet and he invited all of these people to come. The people you'd expect. And yet the people you'd expect had excuses. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go and examine them. And the next person, I've just married a wife and I can't come. All the people you'd expect are finding ways not even to be there at all. So the master says, just go quickly. Go quickly into the streets and bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And when he brings them all in, there's still room. And he says, invite more people. Just keep inviting them. You would have never expected the blind and poor and lame to be at the king's table. But because those you'd expect to be there... Didn't even want to be. There's room for everyone. What a story. What a story. The king welcoming you and me to his table. I hate to break it to you, but you are never going to eat a meal in Buckingham Palace. I just don't think you're important enough. I love you, but I don't think you are, and I don't think I am either. That's a big deal to sit in that building, to sit at that table. Royalty? Come on. Who are we to sit at that table? We're just regular folks. This story says one day you and I will dine with the king. If. If. We are willing to sell everything we have and go get that treasure out in that field, the kingdom of God. Of God. So now let's begin the text from Luke 14, and we're going to read this parable together. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, children and brothers and sisters yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, verse 30. And they say to him, this man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king goes out to encounter another king in war and will not first sit down and deliberate? Whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And as I'm reading this story, it's reminding me of what Pastor Don was talking about from John chapter 6. Jesus had fed this great multitude of people, this miraculous feeding of bread, and they chased him to the next town because they hoped they'd be fed again. And Jesus says, why are you chasing me? What is it that you want? Do you want bread or do you want life? Because I'm the bread of life. So only pursue me if you're willing to consume me because I am life. And that's what you need far more than bread. You see, every pastor, no, Don't say every, Darren. That's bold. A lot of pastors would be excited at a story like this. Do you imagine? You are trying to be this teacher of the people, and now the crowds following you have gotten that large. How large is his following? Hundreds? Is his following half of a thousand? Is he up to a thousand people? How many would chase Jesus from town to town, and the world would tell you, well done, pastor, Look at the work you've done. There's humans following you. You must be doing something right. Or you must be giving them all something that they want. Jesus' response is so different, though, from how you might expect a teacher to react. Instead of celebrating how many people are all staring at him, Jesus says, How many of them, though, are willing to love me more than anything. You see, that's the problem in our hearts from the moment Adam and Eve looked at God and looked at the tree, looked at God and looked at the tree, and thought, you know, God is great, but knowing good and evil, is he keeping something from us? Is there something out there greater than what God offers us? And from that moment of deception, you and I are always chasing ourselves, the things that we want, the things that we desire. Jesus is giving examples of those things, whether it's self-righteousness in the first story, right? whether it's elevation, exaltation from the second story, whether it's the lack of humility, the desire, the selfishness to be invited to people's homes in the third story. Or the entitlement of the fourth story to assume that we're good enough for God's kingdom. See, from the day Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that compass inside of us that we follow flipped from pointing at God to now pointing at ourselves. So every time you make a decision in your life and you follow it around, it's pointing in the wrong direction. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not optional It's the only way home. It's it. Because without him, removing the sin in our lives and filling us with the spirit of God, there is no way back to him. The compass will always remain broken without him. There's no amount of Bible reading and prayer and spiritual disciplines that you or I can do that will ever get that compass to flip back in the right direction, apart from the grace of God given to us through Christ Jesus on the cross. There's no other way. So when you choose to follow Jesus, there can't be this splitting of the masters. You know, half the time I'll live for myself and the other half the time I'll live for Christ. It can't be that way. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then he lists this list of his family, even himself, he can't be my disciple. See, being a disciple is being an apprentice. Back in the olden days, way, way back, if you wanted to be a disciple of a teacher, do you know what you did? You left home and you followed that teacher wherever they went. If you were a farmer, you had to leave to go follow that teacher. Where that teacher went, you went. Where he taught, You sat and listened. How he lived, you observed. You didn't go there once a week to hear him talk. You lived with him and abandoned what was at home. That's what a student of a rabbi did. And Jesus is saying, that's going to look harsh at home. People are going to ask you, don't you care about mom and dad? Don't you care about them? Imagine Elisha is out here sacrificing the oxen and the yokes. Don't you think people would have said to his mom and dad, does he hate you? Why would he do something so cruel to you? Or friends of Elisha, do you truly hate your parents that much that you would would abandon them in their time of need? How selfish of you to not think of others. Jesus says, that's what being a disciple of me looks like. We leave home. We don't think about it. We're not going back that way anymore. We're committed to the very end and to the world. That kind of commitment, and that kind of commitment looks like hate to other people. Verse 27 made me think a lot about how we can reference and talk about building church and Christianity nowadays. It says, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Take a look at the cross over there. When I think about this, I was reading a story this week in a commentary about what they would do back in the days of Rome when a prisoner was going to get crucified. They would give them the cross beam and they carried the crossbeam through town. They carried it through the city up into the place where they would get executed. And it was this way of shaming them and showing the whole city what they had done wrong. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't hidden. It was the most public thing there could be. You were going to walk through town holding a guilty sign around your neck. And Jesus says to this large crowd of people who are all following him, unless you're willing to grab your crossbeam, unless you're willing to carry it with me, go home. Go home. But why would he do that? Does he not love them? Does he hate them? Because God knows what is for his glory and what is for his good. And he knows that our desire, the desire of our hearts, will always want to drift back to himself. And he says, that's not the way that we're going to live out our Christian faith. We're not going to have this life where people from the outside can't even tell we know him. If your neighbors don't know that you know Jesus, you probably don't know Jesus. If your coworkers don't know that you know Jesus, you probably don't know Jesus. I love you, but that's the honest truth. If people around you don't know, if they don't see the crossbeam that you're carrying, are you even carrying one? Because you should be, and it should be visible somehow. The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't hate the people who are following him. He knit them together in the wombs of their moms. He's explaining to them that if you want to follow me, if you truly want to, this is the way back to life. It's going to look like abandoning home, but that's the way back to life. It's going to look visible, it's going to be public, you're going to have to carry it, but that's the way back to life. For God's glory and for your good, it's the way back to life. Because you'd hate to be like the one who builds this tower and doesn't consider whether he has enough money to finish it or the one who's going off to war and he doesn't have enough men to complete the battle. This is what we learn about God in this story. That God was willing to count The cost. You see, God is the one who builds his kingdom. And he welcomes you into his kingdom. And it's going to cost him everything. It did cost him everything. I don't know if you read the Bible this way, but I often think back to the Old Testament when I'm trying to read the stories of Jesus. God knew from the moment Adam and Eve looked at him and looked at the tree and looked at him and heard the lies of Satan, and from the moment Adam and Eve walked their own way, God knows what it's going to cost himself to bring them home. He's not naive to it. His people are now infected with sin. And how is he going to redeem his people out of sin? It's going to take his own sacrifice. He knows this. And he counts the cost to build this tower. God has been battling with Satan since the moment in the Garden of Eden that we see the snake deceiving his creation. This battle has been going on and raging since the beginning of Genesis. And God knows how strong he is, and he knows how weak Satan is. He knows that he can defeat this enemy, but on our own, it's impossible. All alone, we can't do it. It's like a king going out into war with half a size army as the other king, there's not a chance. So, make a plan. Go find a way to make peace because if you enter into this battle alone, you'll die. And Jesus is begging this crowd of people to consider this. He's begging this crowd, you can't do it on your own. A holy God knit his people together and then counted the cost of discipleship himself. What do we learn about humanity in this story? That we cannot count the cost on our own. Apart from the work of God, the salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will always be battling 20,000 with 10,000. We will always be building a tower without enough money to finish. We can't do this on our own, and it should humble us. It should humble us. We should realize we're sitting at a table that we don't deserve to sit at. So don't assume you get the place of honor. You don't deserve to be at the table at all. See, when we welcome people into our church family, when they come in and they join the family, instead of trying (laughs) to appeal to them with all the amazing things that they'll get from our church family and from Jesus, instead of trying to entice people in God will give you this and he'll give you this and this. If you join the church, you're going to get a social club for your your teenagers and teaching for your children, a a mom's group. You'll find support and friendship. Just come to Jesus, please. You'll love him so much. What if we had Lee and Jerry standing at the doors and as people entered the building, we handed out crossbeams do you imagine coming to the doors on Sunday morning and here she is standing at the door and Lee says, hi, welcome here, and she hands you a crossbeam and says, you're one of us now, you're going to carry this forever. And everyone in this family is proud to carry theirs too. Welcome here. But what do I gain from being a part of your church family? God. And his bride. What does it cost me? Oh, everything, friend. Absolutely Everything. And we love it. We wouldn't have it any other way. Now, does salvation cost us everything? Let's be careful how we speak about this. Because both of them rest in tension. Here's what I mean. They rest in tension. Salvation in Jesus is a free gift. We believe in our hearts, we confess with our mouths, and we are saved by the Lord Jesus And yet, to follow him as a disciple costs us everything. It's a free gift, but a costly life. And both of those rest together. But we can't ruin either of them by making following Jesus free or salvation cost us something. They rest together on the same field. So God is holy. We've learned that. You are not. We've learned that. We've learned that the gospel and salvation is the desperation of us needing, the saving of him, for us to have a shot at this life, this battle and this tower. But my friends, what does this mean for you and me? Where's the application in this story for us today? A couple months ago, and you guys asked me to be your pastor, your lead pastor. And I have to consider whether I'm willing to make that pledge and that commitment to you. This commitment could cost me everything, my hopes and my dreams and my plans for the future. If I make this promise to you, I need to be sincere. I need to be willing to fully commit myself to this family. This isn't a flippant thing. It's one of the largest decisions I'll ever make. I hope to bring into our family the same level of thought and concern and devotion to ourselves, each other as the bride of Jesus, and to God himself. Like I said, it's not about perfection, it's about devotion. I'm not perfect. Never going to be. But I'm devoted. Am I in? I am. As we interviewed the two youth pastors this week, both of them wanted to know, what happened in your church the last few years? you have a transitional pastor. Something not go well? And I told both of them, something did not go well. And what they ask is, how is the family doing? That must have been incredibly hard. Is the family broken? Is the family angry? Is the family divided? How's the family doing? The church And I told both of them, the family's committed. The family is devoted. Sure, there's pain. Sure, there was brokenness. Don't even know if it's all gone. But there's hope, there's a future, and they're committed. They're here. I'm here. We didn't leave. This is the kind of family that I want to pledge myself to for as many days as I have left to follow Jesus. You are a committed family. And that's why I thought, and Dawn had such a good idea, to end this service by doing a reading together up on the screen. What we're going to read is we are going to read the membership covenant. Now let me say this first. Whether you are a formal member of our church or whether you're an active participant in our church family, I want you to be able to read the aspects and elements of this that are true to you. But this, I think, is a beautiful representation of the pledge that I have made to God and the pledge that I have made to you and that you have made to God and you have made also to the family to the bride of Jesus. Becoming a member, reading this covenant and pledging to it is a beautiful picture of our commitment. So let's read through it together. We'll pray and end our service. All right. Ready to read it with me? I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, A believer in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for my sins and has risen for my justification. Baptized upon confession of faith. Born again as a child of God through the Holy Spirit. Committed to the Bible as God's Word. I am committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ by intentionally... Studying the Bible and praying on a regular basis. Submitting to the Holy Spirit in obedience. Repenting of my sins. Growing in my relationship with Jesus. Imitating Jesus Christ in obedience. Demonstrating Christ's love to the world. Telling others about Jesus Christ. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am committed to being a member of Bridgeway by intentionally meeting with fellow believers, considering others as more important than myself, relating to others with grace and truth, using my gifts and abilities to make disciples, following the mission direction of Bridgeway Community Church sharing my resources to support the ministry of Bridgeway Community Church, being held accountable for the commitments I've made as a member. This is the pledge that all of us make when we formally join this family. We promise our lives to the king, and we promise our lives to each other as we build the kingdom. Are you in? I'm proud of you because I think you are in and I'm in too. And I'm proud to be your pastor and to pursue Jesus alongside of you. Let this be the commitment we make to each other and to God as a family. Let's pray together and we'll go home. Father in heaven, You are holy, holy, holy. You are the lion and lamb in revelation. You are the king above every king who's ever stepped foot on this earth. You are the one who spoke the world in creation. You hold all things in your hand. Thank you that today you would choose to listen to the words that we speak and hear our voices. We don't deserve to have a seat at your table. Father, as your children, we come before you, and we ask for your help. Without you, we are powerless. Thank you for your spirit that fills us, that you give us power. And Father, we ask for your help as we commit our lives to you. As we pledge ourselves to you and to each other for the rest of our lives, Lord Jesus, help us Help us to be obedient. Help us to remain devoted. When Satan tries to pull us away with all the distractions and all the beautiful things in this world, help us to remember who our master is, who our savior is. Lord, we confess that we're sinful and we're broken. We often chase after ourselves ahead of you. Would you forgive us of this sin as we repent of it and turn away from it? Lord, help us to resist the temptation of Satan that we face every day. Help us to live lives of forgiveness towards other people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this family. Thank you that in this family some of the most committed disciples I've ever met. Father, I pledge myself to this family and to you. Thank you for the support system that they are to me and my family. Father, would you take care of us and give us strength and power by your Holy Spirit to build the kingdom in this place, to build your kingdom in this city. As you build your kingdom, help us to be faithful along the way. Thank you for the hope and the possibility and the future that we have, Lord Jesus, in you. Why on earth do you welcome us to sit at your table? Thank you for the love that you have for each one of us. Lord, bless the church families that go from this place. Fill them with your Holy Spirit anew and give them power. Build your kingdom this week through their love, through their service, through the using of the gifts of the Spirit. And be with us until we meet together again. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.